How many of you watch the uh, Facebook promo as we get ready for the service each week on our Facebook page? All right, there's two or three people. Wow, that's... Now, I think it said there were like 700-something people that watched it, so I know people are watching it. i got to make a confession to you. I didn't realize when I shot the one for this week that so many people actually watched it because uh, David, my office connects with David. So Andrew and I share an office, and our AC unit connects with David's office. And so, you know, he's got those big windows in his office, and it gets really hot in his office. So he likes to keep the air down really low. So I'm cold-natured, and I asked one of the ladies, and I did say ladies, that works with me if I could borrow her sweater. And so around the office, I, I can normally be found in a nice black lady sweater. And when I shot the video for this week, I just thought, hey, you know, I'm just going to wear my lady sweater. And because I only thought like a handful of y'all actually watched that video. But now thousands of people think that I wear ladies clothing. And honestly, I just wear that black sweater around the office. So I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there this morning. It's only at the office that I wear women's clothing. And only then is it a black sweater, okay? But we are going to be in Galatians this morning, continuing our study of grace changes everything. And you know, I was sharing earlier in the first service about the time in my life when the book of Galatians came alive to me. We all have passages of scripture, books of the Bible that mean something special to us. And for me, the book of Galatians is especially important to me. It was the summer after I graduated college that I did a study of Galatians just on my own. And God really, through his spirit, worked in my life and the scripture came alive to me. And so the book of Galatians is one that is near and dear to my heart. Particularly the passage that we're not looking at today, which is Galatians 2, where Peter and Paul have a little dispute because Peter is constantly going back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles at the table fellowship. And so I can identify with this, and I believe all of us in this room can identify with Peter's struggle that he deals with in that passage. Because there's two extremes that we want to go to as believers in Jesus Christ. We either want to believe, even though we know it's not true, that if we can obey the law, if we can check off the do's and don'ts, God will be pleased with us. Even though we know it's not true, we want to hang on to that thought. And then the other side of it is, we know that grace through faith is how we come to know Jesus Christ, and it's only by God's grace. So sometimes we think, because God's grace is sufficient for me, that I can go and have a license to sin and live my life however I want to. So we find both abuses of not only the law, but grace in our lives. And so we're constantly struggling with that tension of realizing that, yes, grace is sufficient for me, but I still have an obligation to live a life of holiness. And so that's when Galatians became my go-to book by Paul. It was after I graduated college. So this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, actually, starting in verse 23. We're going to go through the beginning of chapter 4. This is what Paul says to us, starting in verse 23. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning you would teach us, transform us, and shape us into who you have for us to be, based on the studying of your word this morning. Speak to us now, convict our hearts. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I already told you that Paul is one of my favorites, and this book specifically means a lot to me personally. And it means a lot to me personally because as we grow in our walk with Christ, there are certain ways that the Spirit chooses to speak to us. And so this morning, as I, as I go through this text, as we study it, I want you to know that the points that we have here mean something to me personally. It's not just points of a sermon. They matter. And as we read here, what we find is that for Paul, and what he wants us to understand this morning, is that the law was never the answer. The law was never the answer. You see, Paul writes here that the law, in my ESV version, which there are different English translations that say different things. Some of them say guardian, some say tutor, some say schoolmaster. But the idea here is that the law was a guardian. The Greek term for that is pedagogos, which is the idea of a slave in the Greco-Roman world. There was a slave whose main job it was, was to walk the son to and from school and to manage his conduct. Sometimes he could be firm. He could be a disciplinarian. And so Paul says the law is kind of like the slave that we have in the first century world. He's important for a period of time. He manages you. He watches you. But then at some point, this slave was no longer necessary. In the same way that the law, at some point in time, became no longer necessary for us to adhere to. And that time was when Jesus Christ came into the world. We know that Jesus himself says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. So we know that the law had a purpose. It's important. It mattered. But once Jesus came on the scene, what matters now is no longer that you adhere to this checklist of do's and don'ts, but that you show faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul, the Jew of all Jews, trained by the best religious teachers of his day, knew the law inside and out, 
wanted to be a champion of Judaism. That was his goal prior to Jesus Christ. And something happens to Paul, we know, in the book of Acts, the Damascus Road experience, in which Jesus blinds him and makes him aware of his need, no longer for the law, but for a Savior. You see, all of us in this room, many of us have a Damascus Road-type story. Maybe it's not as traumatic, maybe it's not as earth-shattering, but all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, if in fact you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have a story where you had to realize that the law was not going to cut it for you anymore. The checklist, trying to live in your own sinful and fleshly way, no longer worked. And so the Holy Spirit convicted you. He convicted me as a young teenager at the age of 14. I realized no longer could I try to live my life according to this list of do's and don'ts and trying to make myself right before God. It cannot be done. And so the Spirit convicts us, and he makes us aware of the fact that the law, while it does serve a purpose, it keeps us in line. At the end of the day, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. There was a book written in 2007 by a man who actually attempted to live out the Bible as literally as possible. Now, this book was not written by a Christian author, so I don't want you to go home and read it and think that it's going to enhance your walk with Christ, because it's not. It's actually kind of a satirical look at the Bible, but the, the name of the book is entitled The Year of Living Biblically, and i got a picture of it up on the screen for you. And what he tries to do is he takes the Old Testament law and he tries to live it out exactly as it says. And so I gave you a couple extra pictures about some of the things that he attempted to do. This is him walking through New York City with is that a goat or a sheep? Man, I wish David was here. He'd know the difference. But, um, okay, it's a sheep. Thank you. And he's got his staff there. And so he's trying to abide by these laws. There's a picture before and after with his uh, beard, okay, as he grows it out for the year. Now, as I said earlier, this is not really a reverent book. I don't necessarily want you to go home and read it. But listen to what he wrote in the introduction. As he decided to actually try and live out what the Bible is saying to do in the Old Testament law, this is what he said. As I read, I type into my power book. Now, i got to stop right there. Anybody in this room still own a power book? No, because they don't exist. Okay, this is prior to MacBook. This is like 2005, which is not that long ago, but in this day of technology, he makes himself really, look really dated there. I type into my power book every rule, every guideline, every suggestion, every nugget of advice I find in the Bible. When I finish, I have a very long list. It runs 72 pages, more than 700 rules. The scope is astounding. All aspects of my life will be affected. The way I talk, walk, eat, bathe, dress, and hug my wife. Just so you know, I'll give you the ending. He's not able to actually complete the list of the law that he tried to set out to do. Because it's not possible, okay? And he failed. And even as hard as he tried, he devoted his life to this project for like a year. Even as hard as he tried, he failed. And all of us in this room fail at trying to adhere to the law. But the great news, the gospel news, is that the law was never intended to be the answer. Jesus Christ was intended to be the answer. Jesus 
changes everything through his grace. And grace changes everything. And as we keep reading this morning, we get to a passage of Scripture where we realize that you and I in this room are united in Jesus Christ. We are united in him. When Paul tells his audience here that there's no longer slave or free, man or woman, Jew or Greek, what he's saying is radical. Some statistics say as many as two-thirds of the Greco-Roman population was comprised of slaves. So this means when Paul says you're no longer a slave or a free man, he's saying this most likely to a group of people where 66% of them were slaves. When he says there's no longer man or woman, he's saying this in a culture where women are devalued and are second-rate citizens. When he says there's no longer Jew or Greek, this is coming from a man who wanted to be the Jew of all Jews. Destroyed Christians in his path that were trying to expand the gospel. This is radical. Coming from a man whose life was radically changed by the gospel. When Jesus comes in and changes our life, he alters our way of thinking. And the things that once mattered no longer matter. Now, there's a book, again, I know I talk about books a lot, but Dr. Russell Moore, who's the president of our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, wrote a book not too long ago talking about how you can engage the culture without losing the gospel. And he recalls a story early on in the book about a conversation that he had with an atheist. They were having coffee. And she was telling Dr. Moore how awkward many of his Christian beliefs were. How it was strange that he would only have sex within marriage and it was strange that he would aspire to be married to his wife for life and not have multiple partners. And she said, you realize how strange that sounds to someone like me? How radical those beliefs are? Dr. Moore responds to her and he says, you know, that is really radical, but I want you to know something else. We as Christians believe much, much stranger things than that. He goes, we believe that a previously dead man is coming back in the sky on a white horse. And the premise of his book, one of the premises, is that we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be embracing the weirdness of our faith. The fact that, in fact, we are to stand apart. And some of our beliefs are strange. And that's the way Jesus designed it to be. If you're going to stand apart in the culture in which you live... Some of your beliefs are not going to match up with what other people's beliefs are. And that's okay. Paul tells us here, you are united because of your identity in Jesus Christ. So no longer does race, gender, socioeconomic status, your education level, these things are not what matter. On Friday, there was a movie that was released called Woodlawn. Anybody heard of it? Just released on Friday. And it's chronicling the story of a high school football team in Birmingham, Alabama, which is why it piques my interest. Woodlawn High School still exists today. And in the 1960s and 70s, uh, as integration was happening, and of course we all know Birmingham is the epicenter of the civil rights struggle. It was in the 60s and 70s. Racism there still exists. I'm from there. This movie is about the Spirit of God 
working in the lives of teenage boys. During the Jesus movement, as we know, I would imagine there's many of you in this room that might have been saved during the Jesus movement of the 1960s and early 70s. There was a preacher that came and spoke to this team, and as a result, the Spirit worked, and 44 of the 48 people on the team were saved. Woodlawn High School was one of the biggest failures in the design to integrate schools. There was massive violence, riots, The FBI considered shutting the school down. But the Spirit of God worked in that football team and it exploded that entire community. And so the integration process was able to continue. Now, while it wasn't perfect, but the Spirit of God worked and He changed the lives of young men and they realized for the first time that the color of your skin is completely irrelevant. And what you wear doesn't matter. Lakeview, Uptown, Mid-City, Ninth Ward, whatever. Jesus is what matters. Your identity in Jesus Christ is what matters. Did you know in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, even today there are school systems that don't provide buses so they don't have to pick up kids in Section 8 housing? Friends, let it not be. Let it not be of us that we continue to make distinctions among gender, the color of our skin, what we wear. These things are petty. And Jesus tells us, and Paul tells us here, that when your identity is in Jesus Christ, you could care less about the rest of it. Because what matters is where your identity is found. And so when Paul says this here in Galatians, man, this is radical. And it's still radical for us today as we still have injustices going on around the world and we still have groups being elevated above other groups. It is wrong. It is sin. And it's not the government's job to fix it. It's our job as believers in Jesus Christ to stand up and say this is wrong. Paul is is teaching them here. Where is your identity found? Where? Is it in Jesus Christ? Or is it in superficial things? And as Paul continues to teach here, and he continues to write, he reminds us that our identity in Jesus Christ, because of that, we get to enjoy the fruits of an inheritance. He tells us that we are heirs of promise. Now, some of you in this room might have already received inheritance, whether it be from family or friends, what have you, whether it be in the form of cash or land. We all, one day, maybe will receive an inheritance in some way, shape, or form. Did any of you ever receive an inheritance like this little baby I want to show you here for a second? (laughs) If you received an inheritance by being in your diaper and laying on a wad of cash, I'd really like to know you. And you need to be tithing more, too, most likely. All of us get an inheritance from God. But I want you to know it's a conditional statement. I want you to look in the text really quickly at what Paul tells us here. Because I don't want you to miss it. It's a conditional statement in verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The inheritance only happens if 
you are in Christ. It is based upon a condition. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning, every single one of us, is our identity rooted in Jesus Christ? And if it's rooted there, we will receive an inheritance. The thing about an inheritance is the person who is giving the inheritance decides who's going to get it. Which means you and I, in spite of our flaws, God chose to say, you know what? Because their identity is found in me, they will receive an inheritance. The inheritance is chosen by the one giving it. So we can enjoy that inheritance this morning if our identity is found in Christ. And one of the richest doctrines that we find, I believe, in all the New Testament is how Paul finishes up this passage here. And it's the doctrine of adoption. Not only has God saved us from a life of sin, but he has adopted us into his family. Now this carries with it so much meaning and so much purpose. To say that you are an acquaintance with somebody carries certain carries certain meaning. To say that you were a friend takes it up a notch. But to say that you are a part of someone's family carries with it the richest and the deepest meaning that we find in relationships. When you are family with somebody, we all take it up a notch. And what Jesus tells us here is, if you have the Spirit of Christ living inside of you, you are adopted into God's family. You are a son, you are a daughter of the King. What does this mean? Well, it means a lot of things. It means that our relationship with Christ is no longer distant or impersonal. It means that it is intimate and real and that he cares for our needs and he provides for us. It also means because we're adopted into God's family that we have the spirit of God living inside of us, teaching us how we should behave, guiding our steps. And even though we don't want to talk about this aspect of being in God's family, it also means that he disciplines his children. I can tell you as somebody who was disciplined by his parents until I was much older than I should have been, maybe 18, I was still getting whippings from my dad because I was a really bad kid. And so, man, you do not want a father that does not discipline you. Parents that don't discipline, and I'm not talking about physical discipline, I'm just talking about discipline in general. A father that doesn't discipline is an apathetic father. God is anything but apathetic towards you and I. And so the the scriptures tell us that he disciplines his children because he loves us, because he wants us to grow in righteousness and holiness. So he disciplines us along our walk with him. Not to punish us, but to make us more like him. This is what adoption means. These are all the things we get as a result of adoption. It also means that because we are a part of God's family, you and I, each and every one of us, are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not optional. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That means that we should not be competitive with one another. We should not hinder one another. We are a family. You're not just a member of First Baptist New Orleans. You are a part of this family. And when families hurt, we hurt with them. When someone mourns, we mourn with them. We shepherd them. We care for them. Because that's what families do. And because we're a part of God's family, you and I are a faith family here at First Baptist New Orleans. So everything we do together, the work that we do to carry the gospel into this community, is done not as an individual, as a family. Take ownership of your role in this family. Christy always likes to say when we talk about the church, we should never use third person. She tells us this all the time. We should use first person. My church, because all of us in this room are a part of this fellowship. And it's not the church, it is my church, and it is your church. We're family. And the best aspect of our adoption in Jesus Christ is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, you will receive an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, it is reserved in heaven for you. Because we are adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ, we receive the inheritance of eternal life. And the text tells us that it is reserved for you and I. Ashley and I, when we found out we were pregnant with Beckett, it was around Christmas time, and we decided it was on a Thursday. So we were going to go out to eat the next night and celebrate, and you know normally we just go to Chick-fil-A, but we decided that night we were going to live it up. So we, we made reservations at a nice restaurant downtown, and since it was Christmas time, we were going to go eat and then go walk around and look at the lights and the Roosevelt and all that good stuff. So I called the restaurant, and I'm not going to name the restaurant, but I put our name down and said, hey, we'd like two for Friday night, 6 o'clock. I called a couple days before. So we show up on that Friday night, Walk in the restaurant, we're, we're dressed nice. You know, we don't eat fancy meals a lot, so we were excited. Waiting in line, it's a Friday night, lots of people are there, it's busy. Finally get up to the hostess and I say, we have reservations for two. Rutland is the last name. She looks on the computer. I could sense in her eyes that they had lost our reservation. This happens, right? Sometimes, for whatever reason, the restaurant's Lose your reservation. And I thought since this was a nicer restaurant in New Orleans that they would clearly, they would accommodate me. I mean, come on, you know, they would accommodate my needs. And so I just assumed that they would be like, oh, let me get you a table, Mr. Rutland. We'll get that all figured out. Well, they gave me a beeper and they said, oh, we'll try to get you in, but it might be a couple hours. And I'm thinking, a couple hours? This is supposed to be a really nice restaurant. Now, I do realize that people might make up this lie all the time and go into nice restaurants and say they had reservations when they didn't. So I understand, you know, why they chose not to give us a table. Well, Ashley and I were embarrassed. There were a number of people behind us and people around us, and so we just handed the beeper back to them and left, and we looked like we didn't know what we were doing. So it was kind of embarrassing for us. But the beauty of the reservation that you and I get as believers in Jesus Christ, one day, when we pass, Peter tells us, it is reserved in heaven for you. There is zero chance that this reservation will be lost. And this is the best aspect 
of adoption into God's family. But I want you to know this morning, and this is not a popular thing to say because we use this phrase so often, but we often hear the phrase, everyone is a child of God. According to the text that I read this morning, while we're all created by God, we are not all children of God. What Paul tells us this morning is that our identity in Jesus Christ is what makes us children of God. So when we use that phrase, it carries with it significant meaning. Not everybody that roams this world is a child of God. Created by God, yes, but a child of God is a privilege of adoption into God's family only found through faith in Jesus Christ. God's family is large and it's open and anyone can be a part of it but it can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Grace changes everything. And it changes our standing before God. When we can say to one another, I don't care where you're from, what school you went to, what your background is like, how much money you make, if your identity is rooted in Christ, you're in my family. That's what counts. That's what matters. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Father, your word tells us that we are sons and daughters of the King if our faith is in Jesus Christ. Lord, there might be some here today that don't have that faith. God, we pray that your spirit would work in their lives. God, convict us when we try to make distinctions among groups somehow thinking that we are superior to anyone else. God, that is wrong. And we confess to you that that is sin. Cleanse us free of it this morning. God, we thank you that the law was not enough. We thank you that Jesus came to save us. And Lord, we want to give you the glory for that this morning. As we sing, we want to worship you for being a God who loved us enough to send his own son to die for us. Thank you the way your spirit works in our lives. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.